All right, everybody, welcome to the July 27th edition of Cascadian Views. We're back from our summer break. I've got Jan and, or Jan, excuse me, <laughs> JJ and Dan. With me this Jan and DD. So. <laughs> uh, Chris is spending some time with the new children, so he'll be back in the future. Not really sure when. It's not exactly a week-to-week thing. Uh, in the meantime, a, a lot of stuff happened while we were gone. And I think in order to really discuss what we can, we, we're going to keep the topic list a little short this week. Uh, the three biggest things from the last month, I, I guess, would be the best way to put it. Although, I'm sure you guys may uh, disagree about the exact three that were the biggest. I thought it was a pretty good list, though. Uh, and I guess we'll start with... Uh, well, I... What everybody knew but has now been made plain, uh, the president went on a number of racist attacks, mostly on Twitter, uh, in one memorable event at one of his rallies as well, uh, tweeting at a number of uh, female minority congresswomen that they should go back where they came from, uh, and then extending that to today where he's been uh, attacking Elijah Cummings for apparently not running Baltimore the way President Trump likes. would like to point out Elijah Cummings does not run Baltimore. He is a congressman. And it also is, he's critical of the president, so yeah. therefore he has to be attacked and in Trump's racist mind, nowhere that large numbers of non-white people live is worth living in so he, it has to be horrible yeah he he also was just granted subpoena power uh to go after uh jared and ivanka's personal emails where they uh did federal business through as part right. of the impeachment inquiry so that's got to be ranking crump uh quite a bit mm-hmm. uh about the elijah cummings stuff and we'll circle around to it uh the other stuff because i think that deserves most of the talk here but uh, David Simon got into it on Twitter a little bit over the description of Baltimore, and uh, somebody told him to take off the rose-colored glasses. It's Baltimore. Have you ever seen The Wire? Which excellent. David Simon, wow. in fact, made The Wire. <laughs> yeah, and Homicide, Life on the Street, and mm. yeah. All, all, all these yeah, programs, and it, it was a major part of his life, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Shout out to the internet for always being able to point out daft fools like this every step of the way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I go back and forth on whether Twitter is a net positive for humanity, but the one thing that keeps it like in the running is that I definitely get to see the total moronitude of your your everyday <laughs> citizen. Uh, I, I do want to circle back, though, to the, the go back where you came from tweets. There, I, I guess, first of all, there's not really any defense against them being racist because three of those women were born in America. And one of them has been an American longer than Trump's wife has been an American. Yeah. The only one who was not born an American, by the way. That that's just it's so blatant at this point. Yeah. So blatant. You don't have to discern policies and what benefits one race or an he's just coming out and saying it. Like it's the system isn't ready to deal with this. We have Well, no you know, which he does, like the whole Mexicans are rapists thing. Like, right. you know, 
this is this is just a a new remix of an old song an old fan favorite yeah yeah but this one's against americans like don't get me wrong it's shitty to be racist but i i can kind of understand how we memory hold the mexicans are rapist and all that they're they're others for for lack of a better word and in fact that's exactly the word that you know is used to categorize people like that this is so inward focused there there's not even the the veneer you can put over it about you know i don't even know how to put it yeah this seems like a worrying escalation we memory hold the mexican example pretty well this Mm. does not seem like it's going to be memory hold also we probably shouldn't have memory hold the mexicans are rapists thing i i I, I'm more just commenting that we did, not endorsing yeah. that specific, you know, action. I mean, yeah, the difference here is kind of like you said, he's staking out and making explicit what I think was always kind of lurking in the background, you know, with, you know, most of the, a, a good chunk of the American far right is the idea that, again, people who are not white, who are not from, you know, certain heritages, certain European, generally Northern European heritages are not legitimate Americans and don't belong here and cause, you know, quote unquote problems. You know, it's it's noxious, but it's been there and he's giving voice to it and making it pretty much explicit. It's it's the know nothing argument from like a hundred years ago. Yeah. And and in, the, in this specific instance, I think he's probably doing two things for himself. I mean, for one, uh, he's picking out a boogeyman for his followers to focus on, to, you know, whatever's going on in the government, whether it's, you know, the fact that, you know, he's running a trade war, but it's not really doing anything for anybody in the areas that actually voted for him. Uh, the fact that, you know, he promised a wall and maybe he's barely, you know, getting in, you know, a few miles of that, you know, thanks to idiotic decisions by the Supreme Court this week. Uh, but he's really not really doing much and he's going from fuck up to fuck up. And oh, by the way, there's all these investigations into his criminal behavior. So he's singled out a few, you know, a, bo- a couple of boogeymen, you know, congressmen who, you know, are not particularly popular. They're on a bit of the fringe in well in what's considered you know acceptable politics and you know lining up his followers to go after them and the second is you know he's i think he's got this instinct he knows that there's been tension at least played up in the press between these congress people and the congressional leadership and so he's exploiting that too he's throwing that out there and laying on attacks and hoping hoping to raise those divisions even further can i ask a question a little bit um i'm not necessarily endorsing the idea that these women are at the fringe of politics aoc in particular i think is kind of right there at a rising crest but not a fringe but why Mm -hmm. is presley on that list (laughs) because she's she's not especially out there like in the grand scheme of democratic policy she's fairly centrist for the party yeah it's it, it's it all has to do with the, the media kind of the attitude you know the the perception and i think 
the way that these particular Congress members carry themselves and the way they carry themselves in the press. I mean, it really doesn't have anything to do with ideology at all. I mean, JJ's congressperson, Pramila Jayapal, is well, I think, to the left of most things that any of these folks are saying, but she's not really in this conversation. She's not part of the Pelosi versus you know, ex-members of the left wing. Uh, it's it's really just media persona, I think. I mean, isn't she just in there because they all got elected at the same time? Because they're all too. just freshmen? Well, yeah. And... Well, uh, they're also very... And that's why Jamila Pal wouldn't be on there, but yeah. She was only at the term before. That's true. She would certainly fit. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's the the ones that have this particular media profile, the ones making more use of Twitter. I I don't even know if Presley's really a part of that as well. Not really. I mean, she's online, but she's not very online. Yeah. And I don't know how online, you know, Ilhan Omar or Rashida Tlaib is either. I mean, AOC is really the one who's staked out that particular, you know. You mentioned their fight with Pelosi. And by the way, one of the, I think, underreported aspects of the story is how much of an own goal Trump scored in ending that feud, basically, before it even (laughs) really got off the map. Like, if you ever wanted the Democrats to all rally around one cause, I mean, you got it good job yeah and it's the women you wanted to attack right uh, and, you know, also though i think some of the purpose is to tie uh, what he wants to do is to tie every democrat to these four you know they they've got a persona that is associated with you know, more fringe beliefs and particularly with uh, some of them, you know, they've got, you know, they've become hate objects for Fox News. Oh, and so what they really, yeah, what they really want to do, you know, well, Ilhan Omar, I think is kind of the main target and what he says about her is very scary. Like I would be afraid for her safety the way he's been ginning up his followers about her. But, you know, with all of them, they've been kind of otherized and made into this scary kind of Fox News hate figure. And what the Republicans are going to want to do and what they are going to do all throughout 2020 is they're going to be tying every marginal Democrat and, you know, everyone who won by, you know, 5% or less. And they're going to be tying them to Ilhan Omar. They're going to be tying them to AOC. You know, these figures who, you know, are fairly well known and are fairly unpopular with, you know, the general public nationwide uh, because they've mostly been exposed to people who hate them. Uh, so he's going to, you know, say, you know, Sharice Davids, Lauren Underwood, Lucy McBath, uh, Katie Hill. You know, they're going to try and tie all of these folks to, you know, these particular, you know, to AOC, to Ilhan Omar. And they're going to do it with whoever the Democratic nominee is as well. And kind of make it that the hate figure. I mean, they tried to make a demon of Pelosi in 2018 and nobody cared. And 2020 is going to be too late to continue making a demon of Hillary, although they may try. But uh, I think that's really going to be the strategy. They've got a couple of you know scary people that they can tie Democrats to generally. And that's what he's going to want to do. So, you know. He, I'm pretty sure he loves having you know Democrats publicly bear hug these folks. 
I yeah, just, I mean, it seems to be playing for him so far. Yeah, that's a depressing aspect of this. I shared a note that in a couple of tracking polls, Trump actually gained support among Republicans after yeah. his tweets came out. Like, you know, in the neighborhood of five to seven points, not a lot, but it's mm. morally offensive to me. Yeah. It goes up when he says such outrageously racist things. It's terrible. But, well, he's t- taking the fight to people they hate, and that's that's the essence of, I think, his bond with I mean, the Republican and, Party. And I think just in the same way that he wants a distraction from all of the investigations and the constant series of failure, so does his base. Yeah. And they want an enemy and they want something to cheer against because when you look around, everything else isn't super great. Even yeah. even from their perspective. That's that's a good point. I mean, you can spend so much time in a bubble, but there's still the real world out there. You know, even though you've kind of plugged in, you said, oh, you know, no collusion, no, you know, no obstruction. Mueller found him innocent. You know, just kind of bury your head in that. You know, the world's still talking about what the world's still talking about. And some of it's still going to be going over and it's going to piss you off. And so, yeah, you'd rather have, you know, you know, a two minutes hate against, you know, some, you know, woman from Somalia. That's that's what you'd rather do. Uh, I guess that brings us up to our our second kind of big story, and that's Mueller had his day on the Hill. It went not spectacular for anybody, I think would be the best way I would put it. Um, Mm. The Republicans looked fucking insane. I mean, they they spent a lot of that hearing screaming at him. And I'm not saying screaming figuratively. I, I mean, like, yelling at the top of their lungs from their seats. Uh, they tried to pin the whole report on obstruction of justice as illegal. Uh, and I, I posted about this in our discussion, but I think with Dan here in a legal perspective, it bears some looking into it. According to House Republicans, Mueller pointedly did not make a decision about prosecuting or declining to prosecute. He had to abide by the OLC memo. The report is mandated uh, to explain any prosecutorial or declination decisions. Since he did not make one of those decisions, that whole entire part of the report is illegal and an affront to the rule of law, I believe one congressman put it. Yeah. (laughs) Does that make any sense whatsoever? Absolutely none. But it ties in very well with the kind of gaslighting that's been ongoing since... uh, Bob Barr put out that four-page letter, you know, supposedly summarizing what was in the report. And uh, he's put Mueller under certain, you know, Mueller's under certain rules for how he was supposed to conduct this investigation and what he was supposed to gather and what he could make public and what actions he could take at the end. And it was a very tight box. And since you can't actually charge the president with a crime, he's kind of left up to just putting, you know, here's the evidence, here's what we found. We've redacted a lot of other materials and things that are before grand juries, but, you know, here's everything that, you know, there's no other reason not to publish it. And that's frankly within his brief. And that was permitted ultimately by the attorney general. 
So the idea that it's some violation of the statute or Justice Department policy is just completely invented. Uh, it's certainly not been, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think of any really, you know, counter examples I can think of or any reason that it should not be made public. You know, this is information that we've all paid for. It's the result of an investigation, not just into the criminal matters, but as Mueller put it pretty clearly, uh, it has ramifications for national security as well. So all parts of it are certainly relevant and of interest to the public. Was there anything that came out of the hearings that you didn't expect? Mm, no, not really. I mean, he, pretty much anything that Mueller said, he's said at least in some form or another or intimated it. You know, the, the supposed headline was that, you know, if Trump were no longer in office that, you know, he could or he could proceed to charge him with uh, obstruction of justice. But I mean, that was more or less what he said at the press conference back at uh, when he closed the uh, special counsel's investigation in the first place. He did, so that's, that's not completely new information either. He did get a little bit of a question uh, that ended up not answering because of lack of time and whatnot. But mm -hmm. it was one of the, the Congress people wanted to know what would happen if there was a uh, like a statute of limitations issue going on. Whether the president mm -hmm. could run out the clock while he was in office. Does, does that mean he could never be charged with something? I would I would think so. I don't think there's I don't I'm not aware of anything that would allow it to be told specifically for that. That that just so, that seems to really be an affront to the rule of law, at least. Yeah, I was really it's curious. Very perverse incentives, yeah. It it gives him it gives him the incentive to, you know, do it again, do everything he can to stay in office mm -hmm. and make sure that he doesn't leave while he still has exposure. It, it also just makes me really suspicious he's going to try that pardon himself gambit. Oh, sure. I mean, yeah. I, I don't have faith in us figuring that out. I mean, there is a lot of legal opinion that you actually can't do that. But then yeah. there's nothing in the actual text that says you can't do that. So Yeah, there's nothing to say that he can't use executive privilege to date his pardon in the future right. and resign and then hold the paper and be like, ta-da, the future. I'm and clean, then, yeah. Yeah. And then while the Supreme Court takes, you know, four years to figure that out, he'll just go live someplace else. Jesus. All right, then. Uh, let's talk about Mueller himself. One of the, the big stories, I guess, on social media was that Mueller looked really unsteady. Not at all like mm -hmm. his previous times testifying before Congress. Like, yeah. he, the, the years have kind of clearly taken a toll, I think. Or at least that's my view as a layperson. I don't know mm -hmm. if that anything to that. Did that seem like the case to anybody else, or was he just trying to be really, really careful? I mean, I guess I'm not super familiar with his too many of his previous speeches, but yeah. I, oh, I, I really feel like he came across as just like an old school veteran G-man. Like, 
mm-hmm. a man who is very, very practiced at never making a vocal gaffe in public ever. Yeah. Like, and specifically never saying anything that might become a crime. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, everything, like, everything was narrow. Everything was a very, very brief answer. I I feel like he he suffered no bullshit and did nothing to allow people to grandstand. Like, he did not participate in the grandstanding. So right. that's also Because another... there was certainly plenty of grandstanding that he didn't yeah. really contradict either. He just, like, seemed to do nothing about it. There, uh, there was definitely a difference, I think, in the two testimony sessions. The one he had before judiciary came first, and it was it was kind of a clusterfuck. Although um, eventually Democrats did kind of settle into a comfortable place, getting kind of one word answers from him that Republicans never really went to. They they just wanted to yell at him really, and he had to give kind of longer explanations for other things, or not at all. At, at one point, I believe he said, uh, I take your question in the face yeah. of some extremely intense personal criticism from Republicans, and that, that was his only comment, I take your question. Yeah. I think he was doing the very best that he could to not provide footage for a campaign ad next year, yeah. to make sure that there was nothing that could be used of something he said. So, uh, and I actually thought that was a good move by Democrats. They got some really powerful one-word answers that will, in fact, play well in campaign ads next year, Mm -hmm. uh, just by virtue of them being here. On the other hand, when it went to the judiciary, I think Schiff was incredible. Uh, Schiff had that, that whole committee locked down. Uh, to the point where I'm actually surprised he's not getting more talk about being in a House leadership role uh, at some point in the next couple of years. That was amazing. He he did go for longer answers, and it seemed Mueller was willing to provide some longer answers. This was the session where, uh, I believe it was a congresswoman, not Schiff himself, mm-hmm. but mentioned about how all these things that Mueller uncovered seems to be threatening the very heart of our democracy, and he was like, I can't agree with that. Not to say you're not wrong, but I can't agree with that. Uh, and and that seemed to play better for them, uh, whereas the Democrats in the morning really just kind of flailed about until they got to their, their one-word simple answer to demonstrably bad questions, which worked for them, I guess. Yeah. It's kind of all they could do at that point, I think, yeah. Well, and Schiff definitely has a much deeper knowledge of the report well, he's also uh, quite a few people might have actually been legitimately asking questions, not leading <laughs> questions for the American people. Just like, oh, so what was that thing that happened again? Yeah. Schiff got into politics after being a career prosecutor, so he knows how to prosecute a case. He knows how to get a witness to give the testimony you're looking to get from it. Uh, I just he was probably better suited for that role. Although, to be honest, that's a common path. Nadler may have done the exact same path. I don't know. But if so, I'd say Schiff was better at it. Let's see. Just consulting the old... Wikipedia. Wikipedia. Yeah, uh, I think... Looks like he's almost always just been in politics. Uh, He was... uh, 
well, he is an attorney himself, but uh, I think it was private practice. And then yeah, and also there's a difference between in, having yeah. a law license and being an attorney. Like everybody in Washington yeah. has a law license. Very few of them are actually like lawyers. Right. Yeah. So, oh, and yeah, he was in the New York State Assembly from actually the, his last year of law school. So, yeah, he, he's been a politician for pretty much his whole adult life. There we go. Uh, yeah. That's why Schiff is better at that. The, the other big consequence of Mueller's testimony, uh, and we kind of watched this develop in real time. We had a couple live threads uh, in the subreddit group, not subreddit, excuse me, in the Facebook group. But uh, Pelosi, Nadler, and Schiff gave a post-Mueller press conference that was delayed over a fucking hour because Trump would not shut up outside his plane. <laughs> um, and... Then they they moved into some new territory for us, which was they discussed impeachment as an inevitability, something that they are building towards. And then just a couple days after that, they they got back. It, I, I don't even know how to put it there. They said that they're an impeachment inquiry. They filed some paperwork with the court over one of their subpoenas and mentioned explicitly that they are needing this information because of an ongoing impeachment inquiry, which seems like a big step. I mean, JJ, I'm sure you'll tell me how I'm completely wrong and this is really just, you know, farting in the wind and they're not going to do anything, but it, it feels big to me. I mean, I'd like it not to be farting in the wind. Yeah, I would. I, w I would. I would like us to do something. Yeah, it. I would say it's both. It's both big, and it is absolutely farting in the wind because this. There's only way one way this can end. I mean, that's something we've always known that the an impeachment process. You know, the best way that it can end, given the nature of you know the republican party today is this will end at best with an acquittal in the senate and the only question is whether joe manchin votes with all 53 republicans to acquit or if we manage to hold the democratic caucus together to all vote to convict that's how this ends none of them are going to vote to actually convict him and that's just that's going to be the end of it and I guess the question is, is there a way we can do this that produces some, I, I guess, makes it less likely that Trump is reelected? Or are we going to do it in a way that makes it more likely that Trump is reelected? And I really don't know what, yeah, <laughs> if it's even possible to do the former, make it, make it less likely to be reelected because at the end of the day, he's still going to get... You know, his triumphant, you know, the Senate says no collusion. The Senate says no obstruction. You know, it's all a witch hunt. And by the way, Democrats are just as bad because they're wasting your time on things like impeachment when, when I'm clearly not guilty. You know, the Senate just said so. So you can't put the Democrats back in charge. Everybody's lousy. And I'm lousy, too. But the economy's great and vote for me again in 2020. I mean, that that's what he's going to say. And I, I don't know if there's a way to do this to make that less, ring less true to the median voter. Uh, 
I'm just not sure if it's there or if it's going to get there. So kind of hot take on this. Uh, if we had gone for this like a year ago, I think I would have been all on board. I am less happy with the idea of having to conduct the presidential election uh, while there's like an ongoing impeachment trial in the Senate. I just, that, that really strikes me as a terrible idea. Do you think that moderates and independents are going to find an impeachment proceeding a favorable circumstance for a sitting president and make them more electable? So let me lay this one on you, JJ. Um, more independent voters think the current Congress is ineffectual and does nothing than did at the height of the Tea Party. Uh, that number spiked after Democrats won back the House, and they they just they they don't dig it, I guess. Um, and I just I think it's this is the most vacuous of complaints, and I, I recognize that. I just think it's really, really bad optics and takes away from the fundamentals of the race, which are very strong for Democrats. And really, aside from the economy, is basically begging us to win unless we screw something up and turns it into much more of this crap show reality TV type thing, which I think benefits Trump immensely. And I, I think... And recognizing that all these things actually mean something to people and mean something to history. And it is absolutely a moral good that we should stand up and you know hold our leaders accountable regardless of what that costs us and all that. Recognizing that all those things I would not argue with are good. I, I, I'm really starting to feel like conducting a presidential election underneath the cloud of impeachment and all that happening in the background and it being this fucking circus can only benefit Trump. But it's, it, it's also exactly like that kind of tail covering and not going for the moral good that a lot of people criticize Democrats for. So like yeah. leaning into that, like further isolates all of those people who say that the party doesn't really fight it just kind of pisses and whines and then wanders off yeah like yeah if you can't hear like then just get out of the kitchen man like honestly it's clear there are quite a few cases of you know obstruction of justice lying around like i am absolutely there's a with lot you. of clear cases here yeah. Um, and yeah, I think it's absolutely about Democrats selling that, but if they can't, uh, they probably shouldn't be around right now in a leadership capacity anyway. Yeah. I, I'm not even mm -hmm. arguing with that, man. You are, you are absolutely right. I'm just, and I mean, I agree. The optics can be bad and the, yeah, it could be a distraction, but, and they need to be united. Like, I mean, from Dan's example, like, yeah, if, if mansion bucks, then like it's fucked. Like, yep. just I, like if he bucks to tuck his tail, the whole plan blows. Um, it's, it's, it's definitely an all or nothing kind of a thing. Either that or leadership would have to like 
that moment cast him out and just be like, cool, Joe doesn't walk with us anymore, peace. Um, Because it would have to be a united effort or, yeah, any sort of internal fraction is going to give Trump more to play with, more to argue with. Yeah. I'm pretty sure Manchin is not actually the Democrat in the Senate who votes with Trump the most often, by the way. I'm going to look that up, but I'm pretty sure it's not Manchin. Think Doug Jones? I believe so, yeah. Probably. You know, Doug Jones is up for re-election next year, and presumably he wants to continue being a senator. <laughs> uh, I don't think it's going to happen, but, uh, you know, it's okay. You know, you can give it a shot. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not even sketching out the worst-case scenario here. I mean, the worst-case scenario is that it fails in the House, which is also a Yeah, very that would be thing. really tragic. That would be even worse. And... There's, you know, fairly good reasons for that. I mean, we've got like 30 to 40 Democrats who've been elected in districts that generally support Republicans, you know, sometimes pretty strongly. You know, part part of that's been because all these districts have been gerrymandered to shit and they've packed as many, you know, Democrats as possible into seats that are 80% Democrat or something like that. And the very few seats that were actually competitive and the Republicans did the best they could to make sure in you know, the states where they had control, which was most of them after 2010 elections, uh, that in the districts that were competitive, that the competitive advantage was still on the Republican side. So really going into 2018, you know, we had every district where Democrats normally win. Everything we picked up was districts where Democrats under normal circumstances could not win. And what it really came down to was, you know, overwhelming both opposition to Trump, a desire to see some check on Trump, and some, you know, I think for a lot of voters, some desire to return to life before Trump, before everyone had to pay attention to politics every single day because something insane was happening and so you've got you know 40 democrats in these seats where under normal circumstances they shouldn't be there you know there was you know going back to 2012 you know the popular consensus was democrats do not have a shot at taking back the house before the next redistricting the gerrymandering has been done so solidly and you know, I think they're all looking to you know try and hold on through one more seat, uh, one more round of elections, and uh, have a decent outcome in 2020, so that you know the next redistricting is you know slightly less awful. So they're going to want to avoid taking votes that are going to put them at odds with the people in their district. And impeachment, if it actually goes forward, is kind of a big newsy sort of thing that makes those kind of normal don't want to pay attention to politics people freak out that oh my god you know my normal life where i didn't have to pay attention to all that shit going on in dc has suddenly been disrupted by you know politicians throwing things at each other and you know making big historical things i don't like it i don't like the people responsible for it oh you katie hill you're voting for it well then you're gone you know, that kind of thing. I think that's what the fear is. The last time somebody got impeached, I had to learn about Scottish pleas and shit. Yeah. 
That's a deep cut there. No, that was Arlen Specter. Yeah. God, that, <laughs> the bastard's that plea, asshole. not proven. Yeah. It was, it was actually it was, recorded as not guilty in the congressional record. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, that's, I think that's what is hitting at the margins. And that's that the difference between all the solid Democrats who will, you know, at the end of the day, they'll definitely vote yes. I think you got nearly 200. You know, basically the, what we had going into 2018 will, at the end of the day, vote for impeachment. You've but got you've got one all former Republican who's already voted for it once, so you'll probably pick him right. too. So th there's that, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but then everybody who just got elected last time suddenly you got to squeeze all those votes out, and it's going to be hard to find that 25 to 30 that's going to make them feel comfortable going along with it. So I think there are very good reasons that Pelosi has been cautious about committing on this because that means you know they go ahead without those votes, you know, and Trump, you know, an impeachment vote fails in the House by 190 to 240. I mean, that already happened. That happened right. last week. Well, it wasn't something that Nancy Pelosi was whipping. She was telling them, yeah. you know, no, no, you know, we're not going ahead with this. Yeah, no, I mean, but it's Trump something. was crowing about it to everybody. Well, sure. He was all over Twitter talking about it in between yelling at Muslims to get the fuck out of this place. Yeah. But if it's, yeah, if it's, you know, Pelosi saying, you know, we have to do this, we have to convict, and a fourth of the Democratic caucus says, no, we're not going to go along with it, I think that's that's even worse than failure to convict in the Senate. Uh, yeah, and Pelosi very pointedly seemed to get, like, outright pissed at a reporter who told her that uh, she had a long-held belief that, or a long-held position that they would not uh, impeach if the Senate wouldn't convict. And she went off on that reporter that she had yeah. never long said anything, you know, blah, blah, blah. I will move when I have the strongest possible hand. I don't care what the Senate will do. Yeah. Do you think and that's, that's true? I do, because otherwise, you know, there would never be an impeachment period because we know the Senate will not convict. Period. It's about getting it through the House. I think that's really the, the obstacle right now. Well, let's uh, let's go ahead and kind of move on from that, and instead uh, take a look at the primary as we moved in. Now there has been a bit of a shakeup in the race. Uh, Warren has now pretty firmly cemented herself as as a number two here. Depending on on where it is, she might slip back into a third or a fourth, and she is battling with Bernie Sanders pretty closely. I don't mean to say that. You know, she's left everybody in the dust, but Warren seems to have cemented herself in a better position. Kamala Harris had initially challenged for that, but her her post debate bump has kind of faded. Uh, regressed back to it, I think. Uh, I think that's bad news for the people who don't want Joe Biden. Uh, but you know, that's it's really just my take on that. Uh, mm -hmm. the other... Only until Bernie and Warren unite. Yeah. Like the Warren Sanders ticket yeah. might be able to trump Biden. Yeah. If there was some kind of mutual endorsement or something like that, that could push the numbers past. Assuming, you know, if it's Bernie that drops, and I don't think there's any guarantee that he would, that his voters don't also go to Biden. Uh, I believe it was Gillibrand actually pulled out a. Uh... 
a rather strange attack on Warren, uh, referencing one of the first kind of pop culture books Warren ever wrote uh, called The Two Income Trap, which is uh, basically a a treatise on how the American middle class uh, and poor parents in general being forced into two working parent setups really just pushes them even farther back. Uh, that the loss of domestic labor and keeping up with schools uh, disadvantages their children for the future, reinforcing the cycle of poverty. She also makes points about a implied insurance. That is, if a family being raised on one income, something happens, one of the parents gets laid off or gets injured, there's another parent who can then step up, you know, enter the workforce, right. provide that second income. Um, and also a lot of the benefits that you would gain from a second salary are actually kind of pissed away in childcare money and extra expenses. And it doesn't really come out benefiting you in the long run at all. Um, now I want to make a very distinct point here. Warren makes some assumptions in the book about who those parents are in how she describes these families, but she doesn't ever make a policy prescription about who should be the one working who shouldn't there's nothing like that in there uh however gillibrand uh, went on the campaign trail this week talking about how there is one candidate in the democratic party who thinks women should not work outside the home uh, really w- yes i believe it's her it may have been clue which that's me... well no in that i think that would be probably in line with gillibrand's kind of message overall you know she's definitely kind of leaned into you know feminism as the kind of prime message are you there Dan? oh sorry yeah ended up killing my mic there but yeah i could i could definitely see that as you know the line of attack that jill brand might bring she's kind of taken the you know feminism as kind of the chief angle for her campaign and you know rights of women and issues and how they are translated to and how they affect women and the argument that Warren's making in the book, you know, it's not really making a policy prescription, but even looking at it this way could be interpreted as, you know, at least adjacent to gender traditionalism, you know, a, a criticism of the idea that, you know, it's a beneficial thing for women to work outside of the home. Yeah, it was Gillibrand, the exact quote, we have a Democratic candidate running for president right now who does not believe necessarily that it's a good idea for women to work outside of the home. No joke. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She she launched that line in Iowa at a campaign event. Wow. I mean, yeah, it's a very uncharitable reading of the book for sure. But yeah. Wow. Unless it's actually Joe Biden. (laughs) Right. Well. (laughs) Or... One of those guys uh, that was on the stage during the debates that screamed about his family all the time. There were a lot of those. I believe that one of those two guys would also feel that way. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, I could could see it as kind of a a social conservatism sort of uh, buttressing position. Warren so was a, a moderate Republican at the time she wrote that book. Uh, Warren entered. I was prog- going to say, yeah. Yeah, Warren entered progressive politics by looking for solutions to conservative problems. She was she was never you know a John Birch Society type Republican, but she was a 
a middle of the road northeastern liberal republican uh until kind of the late 90s and then she started looking for ways to solve problems conservatives have with america basically you know the the loss of traditional values the falling behind in the world economy and all of her solutions she came up to these problems uh ended up being progressive policies so she just slowly became a democrat sure uh, I, I guess we'll take a look at the fundraising numbers uh, that have come in. There are now a full slate of numbers. We know everybody's. Uh, and some of them were quite large. Uh, Pete Buttigieg really knocked it out of the fucking Democrats park. are lining up to run against Donald Trump. Uh, excuse me. I have an autoplane ad. Let me close that. Uh, there were some other big numbers, uh, kind of a cluster of them all around 20 million. There was four people. Biden brought in 21.5. Bernie brought in 18 million. Uh, Elizabeth Warren brought in 19 million. And Pete brought in 25 million. That really kind of establishes a top tier in fundraising, I think. It, it kind of overlaps also with any of the candidates that are polling in double digits or close to. I mean, Buttigieg had been a little bit over that line, but now he's kind of slipped below it. But it, it kind of overlaps pretty well. You know, these are the high fundraising candidates. These are also the candidates with significant support at this point. Harris isn't doing too bad. She brought in 12 million, a little bit down from her 13 million in the first quarter. And she's also mm -hmm. up there in the, the double digit tiers of support. Uh, some of the ones that seemed extremely strange to me, uh, John Delaney brought in almost no money. Last quarter, he brought in nearly $20 million. He's self-funding. That was all his own money. Oh, that was, okay. I was thinking it was going to end up being yeah. he, like, moved campaign cash around from an old race or something. No, that's, that's his own money. He's so, very rich. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that... Makes sense, I guess. Cory Booker yeah. continues to fundraise kind of above, above his punching weight, I think, in the polls. Yeah. He, he pulled in almost $5 million this quarter, despite the fact that he's polling at like 1% or 2%. So, yeah. I really like the guy. I wish we were doing better. I really Yeah, like I need some points. So, I was hoping he keeps <laughs> fundraising very, very well because I got to catch up. I've lost my, my dominance in the league for yeah. some time yeah. now. And <laughs> Need to find some more New Jersey politicians to endorse it. <laughs> and and oh, I think he man. had an extremely good debate, too. I mean, I, yeah. I thought so as well. I was kind of surprised he hasn't got a bit more of a bump from the debate. I mean, let's be clear. He did basically double his polling average, but that means he went from like 0.8% to like 1.7. Yeah. Yeah. He, he wasn't really, he was surprisingly low to begin with and then just really... I mean, double, very nice, but yeah, not yeah. great overall. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really it's really become the top five and everybody else, I think, and it's looking like it's going to be very close to that um, by the time the September debates come around. I guess O'Rourke has managed to qualify somehow, but it's not really clear that anybody else besides the top five in O'Rourke are actually going to get there. They may not need two debates for the September debates. They may yeah. just need like one stage with 10 candidates. Uh, yeah. Which really makes you think this field is going to narrow way before the first votes are ever actually cast. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I, I would suspect as much. I mean, I think there's a lot of the, I, I think, perversely, I think some of the more serious of the candidates who are in that not breaking 1% are probably more likely to be the ones that drop out. Like I would, I think it's much more likely that you'll see, um, let's say Hick and Looper or, you know, Gillibrand or Klobuchar or Booker or Castro dropping out than Delaney or Moulton or Yang or Williamson or Gabbard or any of, you know, the more not at, you know, the mainstream of the Democratic Party, you know, candidates. Or at least not, you know, with the profile that you would associate with a, you know, likely Democratic nominee. I want Gabbard to stay in for points and I want her to leave immediately <laughs> for the sake of the country. <laughs> How did Gabbard ever get a job at the DNC last cycle? That astounds me a little bit. A young rising star as of 2000, I think it was 2012 that she got elected to Congress and, you know, military background, you know, that's, you know, very kind of exciting thing. I don't think anyone really looked too closely into what her career was like when she was in the, I think it was the Hawaii legislature where her I, I really... Thought it, she may have gone to the legislature, but I know she started on city council or something in Honolulu. I actually, I think it it might have been the other way around. Like she was oh, in the yeah. legislature, she went to uh, you know I think she volunteered for service in Iraq. I want to say, and then came back, and then I think she was on the Honolulu City Council for a while as yeah, well. Yeah, you're right. She was in the House of Representatives back in the first Bush, uh, yeah, or second Bush, but first term. And yeah, she went to City Council in 2011 to 2012. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, she was a you know, rising figure and also kind of cutting on more of the moderate wing of the party at that point. Uh, so the party, I think, was definitely wanting to raise the profile of you know, figures like that. I think the idea was that this was a candidate who could speak to you know, that 10% of voters that end up deciding these elections because they're in the middle and they don't really know or believe much of anything. But they'll be impressed by someone with a military background and is physically attractive and you know has a good story to make. But yeah, she kind of revealed herself to be you know much more of an opportunist, and to the extent that she has beliefs, they can be very repugnant. Yeah. JJ, by the time the votes actually come in in Iowa, which can which candidates are still running a serious campaign? Who's still in the race on the eve of voting in Iowa? Like past the top five? Um, if, if they are still running because they want to win and they believe they can win, uh, I'll count it as a serious campaign. Who's who's still in it? In I Iowa? mean, I think Booker stays. Yeah. Honestly, I think Booker probably stays to like round two. Maybe like New Hampshire before he, you know, finally either gets somewhere or doesn't. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm really unsure about Gabbard. I don't like. She's enough of a wild card in my head. I'm really not sure how stubborn she is. If, if she, because Booker's got a much better shot, but she might, you know, shoot the dice in the same way. 
I guess, uh, you know, if she can't get the fundraising, though, she's going to be out of the debate. So that's going to end that pretty quick. <clears throat> I don't think Tulsi has, like, any sort of problem raising money, though. No, I mean, she. I think she brought in, what was it, a couple million, I want to say? Yeah, there, that bucks. sounds right. Yeah. 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 So 1.6 million this quarter, and she brought in 5 million yeah. last quarter. Oh, okay. So yeah. then that is enough to qualify, right? Or well, she, but she's not high enough in the polls. No, you you need to have uh, individual donors. Oh, one hundred and thirty thousand individual donors. Gotcha. And that's what's gonna kill a lot of them, I think. Yeah. Uh, that that's actually what the only thing left that might trip up Booker is you know he's raising he's raising money, but he's somewhere I think around a hundred thousand donors right now. He's not. He's got fewer donors than a lot of people who've raised less gotcha yeah it's yeah and two percent i think in four polls so he's qualified by polls but not yet by donations and uh klobuchar is on the cusp of qualifying by polls but no one has any idea of where she's at in terms of donations so i think booker and klobuchar are probably the two that might still end up making it beyond, you know, the top five in Beto. Yeah. I feel like Beto will make it through Iowa, but yeah. I don't think he'll make it through New Hampshire. No, he's... I think he'll play well in Iowa, but I think New Hampshire won't be that interested. He is in second place in Texas, which is a lot of benefits. Yeah. yeah. He's getting crushed in Iowa though right now. Yeah. Oh yeah. And that's that's really he's got to do well there first off cuz I think that's really where he's got to distinguish himself to make himself one of something more than the 1% candidates that, you know, are so many right now. With but such a big at, I'm sorry, going Dan. Yeah, this top 5, you know, there's just it's not even close. The lowest of the top five is Buttigieg right now, and you know the RCP average. And Klobuchar is the next one after that, but you know she's you know six points further back, you know barely at three percent, not even at three percent. So it's just not even close between the top five and all the rest. The uh, the thing I was going to mention is in a fractured field like this, and especially with Democrats' proportional rules. Um, mm -hmm. it, even if the only state he comes close to is Texas, uh, if he manages to take second there, those delegates might be valuable at the convention. He could force trade those away for, you know, things. I don't know mm -hmm. exactly what things he would want. He doesn't seem to have that many policy convictions, so I, I don't know about a policy, uh, trade, but a job trade potentially. Yeah. Cabinet spot or yeah. if, uh. Yeah, you know, with with say, how many people we have and who are going to be earning delegates, if Beto comes out of Texas with, I don't even know how many delegates they award. I know California is like 500. So Texas yeah. is probably like 300, 400. If Beto comes out of there with 150, 200 delegates, those delegates could be valuable come convention time. Yeah. I mean, and I think it would make a very good case to a candidate like Kamala Harris that he'd be a good running mate or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. Or as I feel like he and Buttigieg both have that kind of on the table probably 
staying mm-hmm. as long as they can so they've got a better bargaining chip. Yeah, absolutely. And it's weird to me because the one candidate I thought who would probably be the best at that, who's a single-issue candidate but whose single-issue doesn't have to be the entirety of the Democratic campaign, which, you know, Inslee would presumably mm-hmm. have to be or whatnot, was Swalwell with his, his gun violence uh, focus and whatnot. So it strikes me as a little bit weird Swalwell dropped out. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm a, yeah, I kind of had him in the same category with the uh, candidates like Moulton and Tim Ryan, but I guess he still sees himself as having some more of a future in the House, and he's arguably raised his profile a little bit with this, uh, and he was probably going to do him more harm than good to continue in. But, you know, Tim Ryan and uh, Seth Moulton, they're, they've kind of burned their bridges and shit their own bed, they might as well keep doing this and get a book deal out of it or something. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, so just real quickly before I wrap up, um, I'll, I'll run through mine who I think are going to still be in it. And I'll ask Dan, that'll kind of be our sure for the, what are we watching? Uh, after Iowa, I think Sanders is still in it. I think Warren is still in it. I think Harris is still in it. I think Biden is still in it. I think Bennett is still in it, but not Hickenlooper. Um, yeah, I think Gillibrand is out. I think Beto yeah. is probably out as soon as voting closes in New Hampshire, but he's in it on the night of. I think uh, Booker is still in it until... I'm going to disagree with JJ slightly. I don't think he's in it until after New Hampshire. I think he's in it until after South Carolina. If he doesn't catch on in the majority black electorate in South Carolina, he'll call it quit. Yeah, that's yeah. smart. That's yeah. fair. Totally. It'd be a disaster for Harris, but yeah. 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 Uh, uh, and that's hmm. mine. So, Dan, who do you think is still in it with like a serious campaign after Iowa? Okay. Well, of course, the top five are still in after Iowa. I'm well, see, still on. I, the I very fence. pointedly left out one of my top five. I think Buttigieg uh, fizzles out right after Iowa. I think Iowa's you the think? last stand. Yeah. He's not polling anywhere decent in any of the other states. Iowa's his one chance to win something. Well, sure. Yeah, but... I mean, if if he can't top three in Iowa, yeah, and I, I, I feel like could. that's the threshold. Like, if he gets fourth or fifth in Iowa, I don't think that he carries much further. But if he pulls top three, especially if he gets second, there are yeah. polls then... that show him winning Iowa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't be surprised. Um, I, I, I mean, I don't, I don't not. believe them. But most yeah, of them show him in the top happen. three, and a few of them show him winning. But I guess I should say, I believe that people think that that's possible. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I think, I still think all five of them are getting out of Iowa. You know, and I think, you know, Buttigieg is probably in a good position to pick up some second choice votes from the people that are not going to qualify at delegate thresholds at precincts. So I think he's probably well in the mix, and he'll, I think he, I think he very well could break the top three there, at least based on where things are at now. Uh, I think after Iowa, I think that really does in O'Rourke if he even makes it that far. His fundraising was really bad, and it's going getting worse and worse and worse. And he's burned a lot more of that money too. So I think he's more. I, I, he's on my death watch list. I don't think I, I've got at least. A, I feel like he may drop out before Iowa even. 
Uh, after Iowa, though, I feel, yeah, Booker's still in, I think, for at least one more state. I think Iowa may kill off Klobuchar because I think she's going to do pretty badly there, and she's not going to have a rationale for going on past it. Um, I think Gillibrand is also probably out before Iowa. Uh, you know, she's transferred a lot of her money from her Senate campaign, so she might be able to at least continue on up to that point. But I think there's a good chance she's gone before. Uh, who that Sirius is still in after Castro might stick around for at least through Nevada. I'm kind of feeling now. He's got to get out before Texas. He's going to get crushed yeah. in Texas. He's in like sixth place in his home state. There's no way you let that happen. He's got to mm-hmm. drop out somewhere before that. Yeah. But yeah, I think I think he stays in through Nevada and that gets him out before South Carolina and gets him out before Texas. Uh, I'm trying to think of any other serious folks that might still be in at this at that point. Um, if you were Casper, would you pull staff from every state but Nevada? No, I'd still be in Iowa. Iowa and Nevada. That's okay. where I'd be. You know, don't want to totally fuck the dog in Iowa. Even though it's, oh, God, it's such a ridiculous state. If you it's try such a and process. you lose, it looks worse than if you don't try and you lose. It was and he's really bad for anyway. Howard Dean. Yeah. yeah. He's going to well, lose and anyway. And just like we were talking about Booker with a majority black electorate in South Carolina, we moved Nevada up to give a majority Hispanic electorate a voice early in the Democratic process. If I were Castro, I'd, I'd spend all my money on Nevada. I'd pull out of everywhere else, stake it there. And if you win that state or come in second, suddenly you've got some legs. There are more Hispanic states coming up. I, I think it's his best move is just get the fuck out of everywhere that's not Nevada. Save his money, put it somewhere where he you know can actually meet people on the ground. Nevada is weird in the fact that most of the residents of the state live in one area. He yeah. could meet a lot of residents just doing events, doing like union events with the SEIU around the casinos. He could have one-on-one interactions with like 80% of the Democratic electorate in Nevada for precious little money and put all his paid staff in that state. I think it's, I think it would be the smart thing to do if he were trying to maximize survival. I, I think there's something to that. My main issue, though, is I was so crucial for any of the people who just aren't on the radar at all. And if they can't at least have some traction there, they're just not going to be entities at all afterwards because all the attention is going to be on the ones that win. And that's what you at least the ones that are at the top and aren't doing, you know, quote unquote, better than expected. So, you know, a surprise 5% in Iowa could do a great deal for, you know, Castro or I'm trying to think of anyone else who might still be Booker. You know, if Booker pulls a surprising turn and not turn out in Iowa for some reason, you know, that could give them new legs going later on. Um, Maybe Castro's whole labor message might actually play well in Iowa and he wouldn't have to like do a whole lot of crazy Iowa kiss assness. That is true, (laughs) although I don't exactly think of Iowa as a heavily unionized state. Right, neither do I, but he might be able to just make that, you know, like down home, everybody's fighting for their pay kind of a thing and maybe, maybe get lucky and not have to go like full Iowa stump. You know what? I I can totally think of that, actually. But but I think mostly, I mean, I agree. Like, 
I think Nevada is his better shot. Like, if he could kind of just do a quick shoot through Iowa and be like, hey, this is what I'm about. This is how we connect. Yeah, he might be able to get somewhere. I just, I think he doesn't have a lot of money in the bank. And between Iowa and Nevada, if he basically pulls out of Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, he's not going to get a lot of fundraising, you know, from the days after those primaries. He's going to be kind of blood dry until he presumably shows well in Nevada. So if you want to maximize your $5 million or whatever he has cash on hand, I just, I think cutting states, you know you're going to lose makes sense for one you have a chance at for sure yeah yeah Maybe i could kind of I, I can see the argument for that i yeah okay dan one last question before we cut it off do you sure. think gillibrand's still in it after iowa no, no i do not uh i mean maybe hold on for new hampshire but again i think the in I, th- I think she's still likely to drop before the Iowa caucuses happen. I'm kind of watching remember, to see what happens out of the debates. We always remember when we said no to our first true love. Yep. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, that's kind of, I'm waiting till September, and that's probably when I switch over to Warren all in. So I'm, I'm holding on for a couple more months. All right, guys. Thanks for joining me. This has been your July 27th edition of Cascadian Views. Be sure to tune in in September for Warren Cast, our new show yeah. format. <laughs> that's when we're all in there. Yeah. We'll yeah, all agree we'll on more. Hats, we'll have flags. It'll be great. <laughs> yeah. All right, guys. Have a good week. Thanks for joining me. Take care. Later. Bye. Bye.